out this week at Indian Hills Camp. And our precious friends, Bob and Teresa Lindsay and their family are leading that. And man, what a, what a great night. They were serving the Angel Tree kids, 150 plus kids whose parents are uh, either incarcerated or in, uh, in different situations where they need assistance. And man, they were just pouring out love on those kids. But they are doing something that's close to our heart this weekend. And we continue to partner uh, these next two weeks with them as they are taking their staff down to Mexico and doing an orphan camp. And the orphanage that we sponsor will be a part of that. And you guys know we have a church uh, meeting in Mexico, All People's Tijuana. I'll be down there this afternoon. But Teresa uh, and Bob and family and anyone else affiliated with Indian Hills, can you stand up real quick? We just want to pray for you and send you guys out. Anyone that's a part of Indian Hills. Um, Father, we just ask for your power as this awesome group goes and ministers to orphans. Lord, we pray that these precious orphans in Mexico would understand your love. We pray that many that haven't come to Christ would come to know you this week and that you'd strongly support these ones whose hearts are holy yours. In Jesus' name, and everyone said? Amen. Amen. Man, that is a great work that we are so proud to partner with. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one if you want to raise your hand. And if you do have one, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I feel like we're meeting in a wind tunnel this morning. Hope you have an aerodynamic haircut like I do. We are, we're talking about a heart for the house, and that house is the Lord's, and how God wants us to relate with his people, how he's wanting to form us and fit us together with your unique personality and giftings to build up his body on earth. And the unfortunate part about being humans is we can so naturally work against God. We can divide. We can desert our own relationships, even churches, even the people of God. We can have dissension between us. We can so easily leave the church. I, I heard of a story recently of a castaway who was living on a deserted island for some 30-odd years, and finally he sees a ship going past him. He builds a big fire, and to his elation, the ship turns and comes and rescues him. 30 years he's been on this island, and so as he's drifting away, sailing away on this giant ship, he and the captain are on the stern watching his home for 30 years, drift off into the distance, and the captain looks at him and asks an interesting question. He says, I thought you said that you lived alone on that island. And he said, well, I, I, I did live alone. He goes, so why are there three huts I see on the beach where you made your residence? He goes, oh, well, well that's easy. Uh, one is my home, and the second one was my church. And the captain looks even more confused, and he says, so again, then why are there three? Why is there a third hut on the island? And the castaway looks with disgust, and he goes, well, that's the church I used to belong to. <laughs> you know, and it's just so common for us as people to get frustrated and just say, well, I'm just moving on from those people. Huh? I'm just getting out of here. And that's what Paul is addressing today as we look in the second chapter of Corinthians is we understand that he's addressing how to handle problems in the church, how to deal with sin in the church. And we'll begin with verse 1. It says this, so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Let me give you some context. The Apostle Paul had come into Corinth, this large port city, the largest one in, in Greece, 
and it planted a church. This church, in the beginning, things were going great, but they had started to desert the plans of God. They'd also had some false teachers infiltrate them. Paul had made a visit to them to try to right the wrongs that he was seeing, but instead of embracing his teachings, many of them rejected him, and he finally left brokenhearted. And now he's saying, instead of making another painful visit to you, I'm going to write you a letter, and what you've got to understand here is that Paul's desire as a spiritual leader was to not hurt people. He didn't want to inflict pain on people. In fact, just the opposite, he wanted to make them feel loved. And I I know this is an elementary thought, but I can't stress how important it is That as the body of Christ, a way we're different from the world is we do not delight to inflict pain on other people. Like, let me just say that this is a very popular theme in today's culture. I mean, we have a whole motif in literature and in drama and music, which is built around revenge. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. You got me, so I'm going to get you back even more. I mean, you think about... Dating back to William Shakespeare with Hamlet or Othello, you think about uh, Dumas's work, The Count of Monte Cristo, some of these, these massive works in literature, or you think maybe one that we're a little more familiar with, at least in my generation, a novel that became a movie, The Princess Bride. And you got maybe the most famous line in, in the whole show, hello, my name is Inigo Montoyo, you killed my father, prepare to die, you know? And, it's just indelibly marked upon our conscience of this revenge. And we're like, yes, when he goes, gets him. And God's like, no, that's not what you're called to as a Christian. And so Paul's saying, no, I, I don't want to cause you pain. In fact, I, I, I want you to receive love. You know, but this, this isn't always that common. And I, I had this aha moment about how maybe uncommon this is when a, 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 a Christian book came out on parenting. And, and I, I got the book, and I started reading it, and I thought, you know what, I, I totally disagree with a lot of things in this book, and I got concerned that this was going to become really popular, and it did start to become popular. And so I remember going to some young pastors and saying, hey, why do you like this book so much? Well, why are you so into it? And I remember these young guys saying, Well, because one of the foundations is that the main things that children should get from their parents is love. Well, and and that was part of the book, and I I did agree with that part, but I was like, are you serious? Like, duh! Like, of course kids should feel loved by their parents. Like, hello! Like, that's the first thing. And I remember these young pastors saying, well, I didn't get that from my parents. And I mean, some of these pastors had grown up in Christian families, and and I'm just thinking like, Isn't that the foundation? I mean, isn't that number one in a family? I mean, I know there's some families where people didn't feel love, but I mean, isn't that the foundation of most Christian families? And and what I found is that it's not for many. Like some of you did not grow up feeling loved, cherished, adored in your families. And I want to tell you that that was God's intent. He wanted you to receive that. And so with this aha moment, I just have to stop and give a very elementary teaching for a moment and say my greatest desire when someone comes in the doors of All People's Church is that they would receive love. Like our greatest goal as a church, when someone steps through those doors, when they take time out of their Sunday morning or Sunday evening or when they come to our, our life groups during the midweek, our greatest desire for them is for them to receive our love 
and the Father's love. Can we just all agree on that, church? And then secondly, that we don't want them to receive pain from us. Like, even if you hurt us, we're not going to hurt you back. I mean, because Paul had been hurt. He had been hurt by people. He, 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 his, his, his investment had been dismissed. But he's saying, I, I still don't want to cause you pain. Let's, let's keep going here. He says, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? Now, this just gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart, which is a little different than some of us probably imagine, because I think a lot of us believe that spiritual leaders, they just float on a different plane. And and circumstances and how people treat them, it just doesn't matter. You know, someone can come after them, and they're just like, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Oh, bless God, you know. Everything's falling apart, but praise God. No, and Paul's saying, no, that, that's actually not me. Of course I'm going to keep praising God, but if you're mean, it's going to hurt. I just want to say as your pastor, if you pinch me, I'm going to say, ouch. Like, I, I can be hurt. I'm affected by other people. And Paul's saying, that's okay. Like, if I grieve you, who's going to bring me joy? He's actually saying, you can make me glad and you can make me sad. And that's how we should be as people. That's called a family. We're interdependent on each other. He says this, I, I wrote to you as I did so that I came, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I, I had confidence in all of you that you would share in my joy. Now, now look at this. He's saying, I, I wrote you this letter. I wrote you this letter. Why did he write this letter because he believed that writing this letter that we're reading today, 2 Corinthians, would be the most palatable way that this church could receive his correction. Have you ever had someone and they give you some correction, but you know that they're getting a lot of joy out of it? Like they're just trying to lamb blast you. I mean, they're just going like, boom, drop the bomb, peace. Right, and they, they, they just, you know, they like emotionally vomited on you. And you're like, it's disgusting. Paul's saying, no, I, I wrote you this letter and, and I didn't want you to be distressed because you actually can make me rejoice. Is our motivation, listen, you're going to have to correct some people in the body of Christ. Like if you're truly going to be loving, if we're going to be a loving church, we're going to have to Come to some people and say, hey, what you're doing is hurting yourself, it's hurting others. But the manner in which we do it is very important. So Paul realizes, I'm not going to make another painful visit. Instead, I'm going to write you a letter. I've told some of you guys a story about receiving a letter my senior year in high school from a a friend named Garnet. And Garnet and I had been friends for years. and, and, And at the time, I was telling people I was a Christian, but I was living like a pagan. I was engaged in all kind of immoral activities. And so he writes a a confrontational letter to me. Now, it wasn't insulting. It wasn't demeaning. It wasn't out of anger. But he says, you know, Robert, you say that you're a Christian, and people know you as a Christian on our high school campus, but you live like an unbeliever, and you're engaged in these different activities, and I think you're actually hurting your reputation as a believer, and you're hurting us that are trying to proclaim the name of Jesus. Woo! I was so mad. I remember taking out a piece of paper and I was like, you don't know me and you don't understand what my life is like. And, and I put a stamp on it and I marched it out to my mailbox and I flipped at that red flippy thingy on my mailbox. 
for the postman to come and get, and he came and got it, and, and right after that, the conviction of God just fell on me. And I thought, he was right. I, I haven't been living like a believer. I, I am breaking God's heart. And you know, that moment was pivotal in my change, in my transformation. I, I thank God for that letter that Garnet Sykes wrote. Now, now, do I think we should write a letter every time we see someone in sin? Of course not. I, I think it's much better to actually have a conversation where we can talk and, and, and share with someone. But I think Garnet knew that I was argumentative. Obviously, I was. I wrote a letter back to him. I think he knew this is the only way he could actually to share with me. But here, here's the point. His letter wasn't condemning. It, it didn't blast me. It didn't make me feel stupid. It didn't make me feel like dirt. I, you know, I've seen people write letters. I was just with a pastor friend of mine that I help oversee his church, and he had just received a letter from someone in his church, but it was the exact opposite of Garnet's letter. This guy was just venting and basically said, Pastor, God's going to judge you. Like, Wow. That did nothing to help him. It did nothing to bless him. In fact, look at what Paul says at the end of this. He says this, that you would also share in my joy. Here's, here's my question. When we have to confront people, which we will, is our end goal to make them feel like dirt or is it for them to enter into the joy of their salvation? I, did you know that, that conviction, first of all, confrontation can lead to godly conviction that can lead to godly repentance that in the end leads to joy like that's the goal right some of us are so afraid of being confronted do you know the end goal of confrontation is joy because all of a sudden we're brought back into the lifestyle that God blesses and that's the whole desire of this thing let's just keep reading here this is what this is what Paul says. He says, if, if anyone has caused grief, oh, I'm sorry, let's go. Uh, for I wrote out of this, here, here we go. I'm back, I'm back. Verse four, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Here's a great test when we have to confront someone. I call it the tear test. The tear, the shedding a tear test. When you're going to confront someone, is it out of your anger? Is it out of getting back at them? Or is it out of your broken heart for them? Your deep compassion for them. I remember years ago, I was serving on a, a college ministry team on my university campus. And, and one young man, he just got it in his heart. He wanted to go into the center of the university, stand up in the, in the public forum, and just start calling out the sin that people were engaged in and, and preaching this like old-time repentance message, turn or burn. And I remember our wise pastor looking at him and saying, I don't want you to do that until your heart is so broken that you are weeping over the people that you are preaching to. And he never did it. You know, it's so true, the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's the test for us when it's time to give out correction, which it will be at some point. Are you coming out of anger, out of frustration, out of putting people in their place, or is it out of a broken heart that you're actually shedding tears because this person is hurting themselves and they're hurting other people? If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. Now, Paul, are you speaking in some riddle? Like, what in the world are you trying to say here? I want you to focus in on the word anyone. The word anyone. It's interesting that there is someone that has sinned in this church, but instead of calling them out, Paul doesn't say, you know, Brother Jim sinned, and he's caused grief. He doesn't say, Sister Jane, she sinned. He says, if anyone has sinned, if anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you. Why is he using the word anyone? I, I believe because Paul is trying to cover someone in their sin. He's not delighting in humiliating someone. You know, sometimes we as believers can have this like sick delight in calling someone out in their sin, right? You know, we come to church, we're sitting at the bagel table and eating our bagel, and you're like, can you believe what Susie did? Like, oh my gosh, that was so sinful. And all the while, you're sinning, gossiping about Susie. But you feel so good about yourself because you don't feel as sinful even though you're sinning right then. And Paul is saying, no, if anyone has grieved you, he's trying to cover. We, we, we don't want to uncover people. We don't want to humiliate people. We don't want to divide people. We, we want to be gracious. We want to cover. We want to love. Now, now, what I'm not saying is that Paul never called out anyone in their sin. If you, if you flip over to 2 Timothy 4, listen to, listen to what he says. There is a time to say names. He says in verse 14, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Booyah. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. There's a time when a wolf has come in to the flock of God and a leader has to say, now that's sin, stay away, that will hurt you. I, I was listening to a, a message from uh, Pastor Bill Johnson. I told you I was with him two weeks ago at our international conference. And if you know anything about him, he's always so affirming of people. He, he, he's always building up the body of Christ. But I, at the beginning of this message, he calls out a minister by name and says, do not have anything to do with this person. He has gone off. And I'm going, wow. He is public, publicly denouncing a minister who's been affiliated with him. And as I continue to listen, here's why. He started explaining how much pain he had caused in his congregation and the, the people that he was deceiving and hurting throughout the nation. And there is a right time for a righteous shepherd to have an obligation in order for a sheep to not get hurt to say, that's a sin, that's evil, and stay away. But normally in the church, we're going to cover that and say, if anyone. Now watch what... Paul does with this because he's going he's gonna to go on to help us understand something very important. It says in verse 6 through 8, the punishment inflicted on him 
by the majority is sufficient. What? The, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient? Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for them. Here's the situation. This is what I believe was happening. This anyone, this, this person, has been in sin. And so the leaders have called it out, and the church has stepped back and said, okay, we, we need to pull back from someone in deliberate sin. There's a, a rightful time uh, of pulling away, of church discipline. But now he's saying, okay, and that's enough. We don't want to crush someone. We don't want them to have excessive sorrow. Now let's go and comfort them and show our love. I have three purposes for church discipline. This isn't something that we delight to talk in, but we've got to, we've got to understand it because it's God's way of bringing people back into right relationship in his family. You know, no, no one wants to be around a family where the children have never been disciplined, right? I mean, that is not fun. You know, kids are crawling all over things, hanging from the ceiling, kicking you on your shins. and You're like, could someone please do something? You know, we think it's all sweet to be the permissive parent until you're around someone who's been a permissive parent. You're like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> well, why do we discipline kids? Number one, so they don't kill themselves. Number two, so they don't kill their siblings. Number three, so they don't kill their parents. And number four, so they don't kill the world around them. It's the same reason that we have discipline in the church. Let me, let me give you three purposes I see for church discipline. Number one, to protect the innocent people of God from being harmed by someone's sin. You know, it's not okay for someone to do just whatever they want, whenever they want, because other people can get hurt. And so it's right for us to step in as church leaders and the church in general and say, hey, enough is enough. Stop it. Cut that out. Number two, to correct and reform those who sin. When you sin, it hurts you. You're destroying your life. And we've got to love enough as the church to be willing to stand up and say you're hurting yourself. That's wrong. You're destroying your life, and we don't want that for you. Stop. And number three, the reason for church discipline is to bring the offender back to a place of love and good standing with the church. There is a season of discipline, but then there's a season of always bringing them back in, comforting them, loving them. I, I told you about this conference I was at two weeks ago. I had this memorable experience where this couple walks up to me and I ask them how they're doing, and they start sharing the amazing things God is doing through their life. And all of a sudden, I'm taken back to a memory years before where they're in my college group as seniors in college. And at the time, they were really great leaders. And so they were over numerous life groups. We call them section leaders. But one day, my heart just broke when this couple came to me and confessed that they had been sexually active for a long time outside of marriage, and now she was pregnant. And they had hidden it, but now they couldn't hide it any longer. And of course, the first thing that my wife Stephanie and I did was express our unconditional love and our acceptance and our commitment to walk with them. But secondly, we shared, rightly so, our disappointment. Guys, you're leaders. 
You were, you were training people how to follow Jesus with all your heart, but all the while you were engaged in this thing that you knew was wrong and you were intentionally walking in at, over and over, and you were hiding it. Like you were in hidden sin. And so we, we had them in a time of church discipline. We said, you're going to have to step down from leadership because our people have to trust that their leaders are following after Jesus wholeheartedly and the ministry they're getting is pure and, and not a, a murky, muddy stream of deliberate sin. And they have to trust that they can trust you, not that you're hiding things from them. That's one of the most destructive things in churches is when leaders live in hiddenness and they live duplistic lives. But I said, we want you in the midst of us. Stay with us, stay rooted. And I was so proud of them. They stayed right in the community. They stayed in their small life group. They, they continually were mentored. And, and it was the, their senior year, so they graduated and they moved on to another city. But instead of running, they jumped right back into one of our, our sister churches. And they were very vulnerable and upfront with who they were and what had gone on. And they just kept seeking God and kept coming back and pressing into community. And slowly but surely, they were raised back into leadership. And God started using them until today they're in ministry powerfully leading in the body of Christ. Now that's exactly what church discipline is all about. It's to get the junk out of our hearts for us to finally live free and clean with no hiddenness in vulnerability with community, understanding the grace of God and empowered to walk into our destiny. And I was like, yes and amen, that's exactly what church discipline is all about. And these guys aren't living in shame and feeling like they got a black X on them. I, I want to tell you, one of my favorite pastors to listen to was a man who had a moral failing as a pastor, as a young man. But because he submitted himself to his authorities, he walked in community. God has raised him up to be a voice to the nation. And so some of you think, you know, because of my sin, I just have this black X and I can never be used by God. No, just bring your sin out of the closet. Stop hiding Understand that we're all sinners saved by grace. Walk in the community and embrace God's process so that you can receive the grace to be empowered to live out what he's called you to live out. I'm about to start preaching. Another reason I wrote you, verse 9, was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan, church. And so Paul comes to this very important word in this chapter called forgiveness. Forgiveness. And he's saying, in order for Satan to not have a way into the church, we have to be a church of forgiveness. Can I just say, we wouldn't be the church without forgiveness? Like, none of us would be sitting here as followers of Jesus if it wasn't for forgiveness. Like, we all needed to be forgiven. Sometimes we, we sit, we get all smug, and we're like, I haven't done anything wrong. Wrong. You just thought that. That was prideful. You did something wrong. No, the only way that you're a Christian, the only way that you're a follower of Jesus, the only way you can be a child of God is because you were forgiven. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned and therefore you are worthy in your verdict, in your judgment. Like we all understand deep down inside that I've sinned against God. 
And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The only way that you could actually come to God is by him forgiving you because you are dirty. I am dirty. We sin, we, we steal, we cheat, we lie, we, we're lustful, all of these sinful things, and yet God pours out his forgiveness. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He doesn't just say, I forgive you, tritely. He believed so much in forgiveness that he suffered an excruciating death on the cross, taking our sins to forgive us, to pay the penalty for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. Listen to what this scripture says in Ephesians 1, 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You're forgiven. That's how you can sit here today and be justified before God. That's how you can be born again. That's how you can be saved. We are the fellowship of the forgiven. Therefore, we should forgive those who sinned against us. Well, pastor, I can't forgive that person. That person cheated me. Well, you cheated God, and he forgave you. Well, pastor, I, I, I can't forgive them. That person did something horrible against me. Well, you did something horrible against God, but he forgave you. Why can't we forgive them? I'm not saying it's easy, but his grace is abundant for you to dig down deep and say, oh, Jesus, I'm hurting. I don't like that person. They did horrible things to me. But by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised you from the dead, certainly I can say, I forgive you. Listen to this letter of this woman who had, in, in, in most of our opinions, every right to not forgive. This, on December 5th, Ronnie Smith, a native of my home city, Austin, Texas, who was serving as a missionary in Benghazi, Libya, was shot and killed while going for a morning jog. In, his, in response, his wife, Anita, wrote this letter. An open letter from the widow of Ronnie Smith to the Libyan people. My husband and best friend, Ronnie Smith, loved the Libyan people. For more than a year, Ronnie served as a chemistry teacher in a school in Benghazi, and he would have gladly given more years to Libya if unknown gunmen had not cut his life short on December 5th, 2013. Ronnie and I came to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw your hope, and we wanted to partner with you to build a better future. Libya was very different from what we experienced before, but we were excited to learn about Libyan culture, and Ronnie grew to love you and your way of life, as did I. Ronnie really was Libya's best friend. Friends and family from home were concerned about our safety, as were some of you. We talked about this more times than I can count, but we stayed here because we believe that Libyan people were worth the risk. Even knowing what I know now, I have no doubt that we would have both made the same decision all over again. Ronnie loved you all so much, especially as students. He loved to joke with you, tell stories about you, help you with your lives, and challenge you to be all that you could be. He did his best to live out his faith humbly and respectfully within a community of people with a different faith. To his attackers, I love you and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and his resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. 
Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not only come to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring us peace and healing on earth. Ronnie loved you because God loved us. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. To the Libyan people, I always expected that God would give us a heart to love you, but I never expected to love you so much. We came to bless you, but you've blessed us much more. Thank you. Thank you for your support and your love for Ronnie and our son Hosea. Since Ronnie's death, my love for you has increased in ways that I never imagined. I feel closer to you now than ever before. I hear people speaking with hate and anger and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity for us to show one another love and forgiveness because that's what God has shown us. I want all of you, all of the people of Libya, to know I'm praying for the peace and prosperity of Libya. May Ronnie's blood shed on Libyan soil encourage peace and reconciliation between the Libyan people and God. Wow. I don't know that I've read a more powerful letter expressing the love of God because it's expressed through a heart of forgiveness. A young widow who would have every right to be angry and in pain and to spend her life hating people from taking something that she could never get back. Instead says, I forgive you and I love you and I'm actually praying for your peace and your prosperity. Why? Because she understands that God forgave her when she was his enemy. And that's what she can do. Because the same God that forgave her is now living in her and trying to get out and show his love to an undeserving people. Have you made that choice of forgiveness, men and women? Have you dug down deep? and grabbed hold of the grace of God in you, or are there still people that you are holding with unforgiveness? I've heard it said many times that unforgiveness is like you drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. Unforgiveness is a poison that will slowly deteriorate your life, but you can dig deep, receive the love of God, and let it flow out. And it's one of the most beautiful attributes followers of Jesus. Let me conclude by reading these last verses. They're my favorite verses in this chapter. It says this, but thanks be to God, verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we're an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life, and who is equal to such a task? The imagery would have been so clear to an ancient audience. They understood the scene. A, a Roman emperor comes back after conquest. He's victorious, and he rides forth on a white steed, and behind him are legions of his army, and there's great throngs of people chanting the victory cry as he comes down the Via Sacra, the, the, the main street in Rome, and behind his legions of army then are the, the captives in, in, in his train, the princesses, the, the, the princes, the kings, the, the soldiers, 
soldiers, and he marches right to the Capitoline Hill, and there's incense that's being wafted into the crowd. There's smells of victory. There's shouts of victory. All your senses are, are captured by this victorious procession. And Paul's saying, I, I want you to see it like this. It's King Jesus. He's riding forth victorious what he has done on the cross. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's coming and advancing his kingdom. And we are like captives in that triumphant procession. <laughs>